Cash Value Life Insurance is the payday lender of the middle class, Dave Ramsey. Welcome to Retirement Mentorship, your mentor to and through retirement. I'm your host, Freeman Lindy, Certified Financial Planner. Today, we continue to ask the question, is Dave Ramsey wrong? This is part two, and today on the Two Men Tune In, we will recap last week and what's ahead. But if you haven't yet, make sure you go back and listen to part one. Last week, we looked at several things that Dave Ramsey does well. He focuses on behavior and what people actually do, not on math and theoretics. He teaches that people believe what he's saying and therefore do it. And he provides a step-by-step plan for people to improve their finances and thus their lives. He also is trying to cover the broad population, so some of his advice won't apply to some people. And a few of his recommendations are a bit outdated. Last week, we also covered this statement, pay off debt instead of leveraging lower interest to build wealth. We determined that Dave is right about that. We briefly looked at all five Ramsey rules in last week's Two Men Tune In, so let's dive right in. This week, we're going to cover the last four of what we call the Ramsey rules and ask who's wrong, Dave or his detractors. Is Dave Ramsey wrong? Part two. Without further ado, let's look at two. Ramsey rule number two. Use a debt snowball, paying off your debts in the orders of smallest to largest balance, instead of by highest to lowest interest rate. Dave Ramsey teaches that you should pay off all debt to leverage your cash flow to build wealth. We touched on that last week. He also teaches that you should pay off your debt using a debt snowball. To use a debt snowball, you first arrange all your debts in the order of smallest to largest balance. Say you have a half dozen non-mortgage debts, two car loans, a student loan, and three credit cards. The car loans and student loans are large. And one of them, of the credit cards, is a couple thousand, but the other two are a couple hundred bucks. And both of them are in a zero interest introductory period. Using a debt snowball, you would pay them off in the order of smallest to largest, even though the smaller ones are at zero percent. Using this method, you can easily pay off the little ones, the ankle biters. By doing this, you get some quick wins and you begin to see some progress. More than that, the minimum payments that you use to pay on the little ones can now be thrown into the payment on the next smallest. So you'd be paying that off sooner. And then you roll the payments of all three into the fourth one, and so forth. Your monthly debt payment picks up the payments from all the little ones, like a snowball rolling downhill. By the time you get to the significant debts, your extra payment snowball is big enough that you can actually see and feel the dents you are making in it. The, the progress people make and the milestones they hit keep snowballers motivated to continue. The method is 100% focused on behavior, what people actually do, instead of math, what the theory says. What about the alternative? Many financial professionals argue that Dave is wrong. They argue that you should instead tackle debt according to the highest interest rate and first work your way down to the lowest interest rate. Some call this method the debt avalanche. While the snowball makes sense as a metaphor, this method has nothing to do with an avalanche. I think the name rose in contrast with a snowball and to make it sound superior. Oh, you have a snowball? Say hello to my avalanche. This is when professionals will whip out their calculator, or better yet, their spreadsheet, and proceed to show you how mathematically the avalanche is superior. You will pay less interest and complete the debt payoff faster than using a debt snowball. Avalanche, baby! Now it seems like an appropriate time to introduce you to our friends, the econs. Richard Thaler is a Nobel-winning economist and the father of behavioral economics. The branch of economics studies what people actually do versus what the economic models say people should do. He introduced the world to a species called econs. Econs are a very rational bunch. 
They always calculate everything they should do, and they perfectly weigh all options. If they have emotions, they don't let them play into their decisions. Econs can always devise a plan based on all available evidence, and then follow that plan with perfect discipline and no deviations. Think Spock. Long live and prosper. Logically. Opposite Econs are the rest of humans. We humans, unfortunately, have emotions that regularly impact our decisions. We know what the math says, but what we want other things instead. We have varying degrees of discipline and willpower, and many of our decisions would not be considered rational. Thaler calls the Spock-like people econs because it's how most economists think people behave. Most economic and financial models are based on the assumptions that humans are essentially rational. They make decisions in their own best long-term interests and based on available data. But this is not true. That's why so many models don't work correctly in the real world. Thaler and others argue that from a behavioral point of view, behavioral economics and finance considers human nature and what people do. It's entirely irrational to buy a brand new car on a seven-year loan that costs more than your annual salary, and yet people do it. It's completely irrational to go out to dinner again and charge $50 to your credit card with a rolling $12,000 balance, racking up $240 per month in interest, and yet people do it. It is totally irrational to buy things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like, and yet people do it. Back to our snowball versus avalanche, the avalanche sounds good and the math works better out on it, but it does not work with humans because humans don't work the avalanche. Most humans aren't excited by spreadsheets. When you make that extra payment of $200 towards your debt with the highest interest rate, you save an extra 10 bucks on interest over making that towards the smallest balance. But you can't intrinsically see or feel that. The spreadsheet says so, but doesn't feel any different to you. And humans make decisions based on what they feel, not based on calculators. These financial professionals are stumped when their human clients come back a year after the grand spreadsheet presentation and they still have as much debt as before. Why didn't it work? Why couldn't they see how much money they're wasting on interest and how much they could save by attacking the highest interest rate? Because we're human. For us humans, the debt snowball is the preferred method. Most humans make emotional decisions, so the quick wins and fast momentum of a debt snowball work better for them. The debt snowball plan works better because humans work the plan. The best camera is the one you have on you, the best diet is the one you stick to, and the best debt payoff strategy is the one you carry to completion. You might say that the debt avalanche is for econs. There are still econs, after all, existing as a micro-minority. At least, the debt avalanche can work for them. But here's the problem with thinking that. If you find an econ, I can assure you that they do not have any high-interest debt. They would be too logical and rational to subject themselves to high interest in the first place. The debt avalanche is for no one. The debt snowball is for everyone looking to get out of debt. Dave Ramsey is right, and his detractors are wrong. Two to zero, Dave over detractors. Ramsey rule number three, investing in a good growth stock mutual fund will earn you 12% annual returns. Dave frequently tells callers and listeners that they should invest after getting out of debt. He will often take a caller's current debt payment and show them what it could be if they would invest that until age 65. And the phrase he uses the most is something like, if you put that payment into a good growth stock mutual fund earning 12%, it'll be worth... The numbers are fabulous. Compound anything long enough at 12% and the results look and feel fabulous. And it seems effortless. Simply find 
a good growth stock mutual fund, and you can get all those returns. How hard can it be? Right next to impossible, actually. Detractors of Dave point out that you cannot get 12% returns and haven't been able to get 12% returns for a long time. Specific peers in history got 12% returns, along with 4% inflation and 8% mortgage rates, but long-term returns histories do not give you 12%, and no one believes that we will see 12% returns uh, return. So where does Dave get this 12% return number? Dave has pointed back to the founding of the S&P 500 index in 1926. It started then with 90 companies, and it was expanded in 1957 to 500 companies. Dave says that if you look back at the track record of the S&P 500 since 1926, you will see an average annual return of 12%. This must have been true at some point. Otherwise, why would he try and point to it like data? I'm not sure when it was true. The best fiscal year returns from 1926 that I could find, without looking too hard, were until 2000 before the tech bubble crashed. Those were about 11 and a quarter. Nearly all other years from 1926 amount to around 10% annual returns. And 30-year returns from now also give you about 10% annualized. Moreover, the consensus among economists and financial professionals is that all rates will be lower going forward. Equity returns, interest rates, and inflation are all projected to be lower than historical trends, not higher. So if the best historical returns we have are 10%, and the consensus as we advance is that returns will be lower than that, why does Dave Ramsey keep using 12% return rate? I believe he does so because of behavior. He is trying to get people excited about investing. He wants people to max out their Roth IRAs and 401ks. He wants to appeal to their emotions so that they have something to look forward to accomplishing. Using an 8% return to project your outcome may be sufficient to achieve your retirement goals, but it's not sexy. 12% return outcomes that are much more fun to calculate. I may not be able to give up my brand new car for a million dollars at retirement, but five million? I could drive a used car for that. While I appreciate his motive, I think his message can be dangerous. It becomes the basis for some other rules, which we'll examine in a moment, but for now, let's look at three quick reasons why his message is dangerous. 1. It promotes performance chasing. Many people who take his message to heart are continually looking for that good growth stock mutual fund, getting 12%. I've even heard Dave say on multiple occasions that it is easy to find funds that have outperformed the S&P 500, and that the index is average. We covered that at length in episode 8, How to Be Above Average. If you haven't listened to that yet, go back and find it at retirementship.com slash 8. But I'll give you a summary. The S&P 500 is not average. It's outperformed 92% of actively managed funds, including growth stock funds. Funds that have outperformed in the past are not guaranteed to outperform in the future. Seeking 12% returns, which should be easy, prompts many followers to switch funds and try to research others continuously. The date the fund started, or the historical period began, plays the largest role in a fund's average performance. Two funds with the exact same companies will have wildly different returns if one started in 2007 and the other in 2009, the top and bottom of the financial crisis. As we saw in episode 4, The Four Horsemen, chasing returns is one of the primary reasons so many people underperform the S&P 500. In their attempts to beat 10% returns by seeking 12% returns, they get 6% returns. You can't get 12% returns. You never could. Stop trying. Number two, it causes contribution slacking. Many people compute their savings requirements by first determining what they will need at the end when working the way backwards. To make this calculation, you need an assumed rate of return. The number you use for this assumption drastically alters the required contribution. 
If you are 30 years old and calculate that you need 5 million by age 60 to retire, you can calculate how much you will need to put away between now and then. If you use an 8% return rate, you would need to put away 3,355 per month to achieve the goal. But if you use a 12% rate of return, you only need to invest $1,430 per month. Sweet! Let's go with 12%. Then I can spend the other 2000 per month and still feel like I'm on track. To be clear, Dave doesn't advocate for outcome-based calculations. He teaches that you should get out of debt, accept your house. Then you should save 15% of your income in retirement. While you're doing that, you should pay off your house. And after their house is paid off, save as much as you can into retirement. It's not a needs-based approach. But people will marry the two ideas into an unholy union. They will take the needs-based approach with Dave's 12% and find that they don't need to save 15%. At the rate of return, they only need to save 8%. When they fail to get 12% returns, they will be well short of their goal. Don't cherry-pick your principles. Number three, it supports sales pushing. I've heard a lot and read a lot from financial salespeople who harp on Ramsey's returns. Their argument to the 30-year-old goes like this. Dave is wrong about 12% returns. It's more like 6 or 7%. And investing is risky. Therefore, invest in this whole life policy for the next 35 years to get 4 to 5% returns with no equity risk. Now, their argument is dumb and incorrect on many levels. But when they can prove that Dave is wrong about his return assumptions, it casts doubt in the minds of their prospects about what the rest of Dave says. If he's wrong about equity returns, maybe he is also wrong about whole life. He undermines the rest of his message with this flagrant exaggeration and sets people up to be sold. It's unnecessary. I wish Dave would switch to using 10% returns. They still motivate people to act, achieving his behavioral goal, and at least have the weight of history behind them. The bottom line, 12% returns are neither historically accurate nor anticipated in the future. In the end, Dave Ramsey is wrong. Dave 2, Detractors 1. Ramsey rule number 4. You need 10 times your income in investments to retire and can withdraw 8% per year. Dave Ramsey is wrong. Should we move on? For the diehard fans who think Ramsey is infallible, let's take a closer look. Here's the logic behind this Ramsey rule. Let's say you make $100,000 for easy math and you're looking to retire in the next few years. So inflation is not going to be a significant factor between now and when you retire. To retire, then, you need $1 million. You can then withdraw 8% per year, or $80,000. Social Security will make up the rest. Your $1 million will grow by 12%, so you will earn $120,000 in the first year on your investments. If you withdraw $80,000, your portfolio will end out at $1,040,000. Portfolio will earn you about $125,000 next year at 12%. So you can withdraw not 80000 but 83000 from your portfolio comfortably. The amount allows for 8% withdrawals and 4% inflation. As we discussed in episode 2, you will need your income to increase throughout retirement. Let me clarify a few things. To my knowledge, Dave doesn't talk about this a ton. It is not a core tenet of the Dave Doctrine. I'm also not sure I've ever heard him specifically say 10 times your income and withdraw 8% in the same sentence. It's a combination of two separate teachings that he gives. I'm also not griping about his 10 times your income. We'll cover that in a bit in the next rule. As with all general advice to the general public, 10 times your income in retirement would be right for some people and fatally wrong for others. Depends on everything else. 
What I'm attacking here is his 8% withdrawal advice. That advice is catastrophic for most people and therefore should never be said to the general public. I'm glad he allows for the inflation and does so generously. You're far better over-assuming inflation than underestimating it. Too many retirement strategies, i.e. fixed annuities, don't account for inflation at all or rise in retirement income. The basic principle that you must withdraw less than your average return to account for inflation is sound. The rule is flawed on two points. 1. Assuming 12% returns. 8% is based on getting 12% returns. We just covered that, so I'm not going to rehash it. You won't get 12% returns. If you're trying to withdraw 8% on 10% returns or worse yet 7 to 8% returns, you're going to have a bad time. 2. Assuming average returns are annual returns. This point deserves an entire episode, and we'll get one. Describe it here then in the future. But for now, just because equities average a certain annual return doesn't mean they get it each year. They seldom do. Over 80 years, the S&P 500 averaged 9% annual return. How many years did it get a 9% return plus or minus 2% over those 80 years? In other words, how many times out of 80 did it land between 7 and 11%? Just four. Equities rarely equal what they average. Equities rarely equal what they average. They go up 18%, then 4, then fall 30%, then rise 29, then 14, etc. Equities average 9%. They don't equal 9%. When it comes to withdrawals, we get what is called the sequence of returns. Though equities average a return, the order in which those returns happen changes everything. So let's say you retire and the first set of returns are all negative. Your portfolio goes down 40% in year one. Now of your million dollars is 600000 And you still need to take $80,000 out per year. So you're down to 520000 Even if it surges back 50% the next year, you're only back to seven hundred eighty, minus your 80000 With no inflation raise, and you're still down 30% overall. I'm telling you, the math does not work. And this time, neither does the behavior. They say 10,000 baby boomers retire every day. 3,650,000 people retired in 2007 before the worst recession since the Great Depression. They saw the retirement nest age get cut in half in 18 months. If they had their full retirement in, quote, a good growth stock mutual fund, end quote, because they thought an average return equal annual returns, they have not yet recovered. There's not a core tenant, but I've heard him say it. Once I heard him explicitly tell a caller that she could retire in two years because at 12% returns, she would have enough and could withdraw 8% from that point. Insanity. Dave needs to stop giving this advice altogether. As I said in the two-minute tune-in last week, this is the only thing Ramsey says that I vehemently disagree with. It's dangerous. Thankfully, he usually tells people to sit down with a SmartVestor Pro to help them figure out retirement. I promise not one of them is advocating 8% withdrawals. Dave Ramsey is wrong. Dave 2, detractors 2. Ramsey rule number 5. Always avoid cash value life insurance and get 10 to 12 times your income and level term insurance. Dave frequently harpoons cash value life insurance. Whole life, variable life, universal life, any of them. As we quoted him saying in the opening line, cash value life insurance is the payday lender of the middle class. Permanent life insurance, or cash value life insurance, deserves an episode unto itself, and I'm going to give it one. For now, I'm going to award a winner. 
And this is not from some asset-gathering investment advisor who's never looked at life insurance and would rather play with mutual funds than have tough conversations with clients. I'm a financial planner. We look at everything, and we have tough conversations. And I've learned every trick in the book for how and why to sell permanent life insurance. I used to work for a financial services company that manufactured whole life. I know both sides of the argument, forward and backward. Dave's detractors on cash value life insurance topic are life insurance companies and their sales representatives. They are the ones in particular that wish Dave Ramsey would just shut up about life insurance and stick to debt and budgets. They make a lot of money on life insurance, permanent life insurance in particular. And they have a lot of ways to sell it. So who's wrong, Dave or his detractors? Dave is right, detractors are wrong. The vast, vast majority of people do not need permanent life insurance. There are a dozen better strategies. Stay tuned for the full episode. It's an important topic, and a lot of people have permanent life insurance policies. If you have one, or if you have a financial advisor who keeps nagging you to add some to your portfolio, send us an email at questions at retirementorship.com. Put permanent problem in the subject line and give as much or little detail as you want. I'd be happy to connect with you directly about your circumstances and see if you are an exception to the vast majority. Probably not. I'd also consider going back and listening to episode five, the five questions to ask your financial advisor and find a new one. I will issue one small caveat here. If you don't end up hearing the future episode on this topic, the vast majority of people don't need permanent life insurance. There's a very slim minority of people who might benefit from it. These people include... Multi-millionaires who will be leaving more than $22 million to their children. If you're leaving money to a charity, it won't be an issue. People who cannot and will not save a dime unless they are forced to buy an insurance bill and refuse to put together an actual plan or get help from a real planner. People who like high fees, low returns, cannot stand even the slightest volatility in their portfolio, enjoy having a majority of their eggs in one basket, and don't believe in inflation. Those 50 and older who have a surplus of non-retirement cash laying around and may benefit from a hybrid long-term care solution. Stay tuned for that future episode. The other piece is to buy 10 to 12 times your income in level-term life insurance. I basically agree here. Speaking to the general public, it's a good rule of thumb. Many people have only 1 to 5 times their annual salary in group term life insurance. Upgrading to 10 to 12 times your income is a significant improvement. The caveat here is that it's not always 10 to 12 times. For some people, that'll be enough, others too much, and still others, not nearly enough. The amount is in part based on the 12% return rule. If you make 100000 and get $1 million in coverage, that will replace your income forever. We already addressed that. It's not likely. Later, we'll do an episode on how much insurance you actually need and how to calculate it for yourself. It'll be a two-part episode on insurance to determine what kinds and the amounts that you need. You only need to look at it once every 5 to 10 years. But when you do, you should spend more time on it than the amount it takes for a radio show host to say 10 to 12 times your income. Dave Ramsey is trying to get the broad principle out there as fast and to as many people as possible. The broad principle, avoid cash value life insurance and get 10 to 12 times your income and level term life insurance. If that helps a million people avoid being suckered and a million more get more than one times their annual salary in term, that's a success. I'm sure he'd allow for some actual calculation for your term needs. Ramsey is right. The detractors are wrong. Dave 3, detractors 2. Let me reiterate that I think the vast majority of what Dave says is helpful and reliable for the vast majority of people. 
good as many, better than most. That's hard to do when you're talking to that many people. There are only two points that I disagree with out of everything he says. 12% returns and 8% withdrawals. I have one to ask of you. A lot of these topics we are going to cover more in depth in the future. I want to give you an opportunity to have a direct influence on where we go with it. If you have points you'd like to raise, areas I didn't cover, or positions I didn't address, shoot me an email at questions at retirementship.com. Perhaps you share this with your financial advisor who has recommended whole life insurance to you multiple times, and he gives you a convincing rebuttal that sounds good. Send us what he says, and we'll make sure we address it in that episode. Or you can call and leave a voicemail at 1-855-6-MENTOR. That's 1-855-663-6867. That will do it for today. Next week, we'll take a peek at the Financial Pornography Network, aka the news, and why it's so devastating to your lifetime success. We'll see you next week. This podcast is educational only and is not intended to be investment, legal, or tax advice or recommendations, whether direct or incidental. Again, this is not investment advice. Consult your financial, tax, and legal professionals for specific advice related to your specific situation. Never take investment advice from someone who doesn't know you in your specific situation. All opinions expressed in this podcast are the opinions of the speakers expressing them. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Retirement mentorship is not affiliated with or controlled by any registered investment advisor, broker-dealer, or other financial services company.